What does real power look like? Real strength. What pops into your mind when I when you ask you that? You know, uh, th- three years ago this coming summer, I was on sabbatical. And as part of my sabbatical, I spent some time visiting some of our missionaries overseas. Uh, and so uh, in early July, I jumped on a plane in Kansas City. I flew to Philadelphia for a connecting flight. And as luck would have it, there was this massive storm system up and down the eastern seaboard. So my flight was delayed about six hours or so, which made me kind of nervous because my next connecting flight was in Iceland. And I was really concerned I was going to miss that flight. I wasn't sure what was going to happen if I missed it. So we landed in Iceland. I ran to the gate. I just had my backpack. That's all I needed. I ran to the gate. There was the plane, but the door was closed. Boarding had ended and they wouldn't open it back up. So I said, okay, all right. So when's the next flight? They said tomorrow morning. So I got a little bit nervous and I spent the next three or four hours uh, calling uh, different airlines and look, doing this and doing that, looking at my travel insurance. And I finally found another flight that was going to be leaving another four or five hours after that. Uh, and so I, I had four or five hours to kill. And uh, it, was, it was interesting. You know, people watch, you know, and that was cool for a while. But then you can only do that so long. So I found a coffee shop. I got a sandwich and something to drink. I plugged into my computer, fired it up, did some emails, um, you know, check my travel plans, make sure I had everything lined up because of the changes and just did some reading. And then out of the corner of my eye, I saw there was a commotion that kind of drew my attention. I looked over there and not too far from me, maybe 15 feet, uh, was a guy and, and a woman. And people were kind of looking at him differently. They were kind of kind of pointing, trying not to be obvious. Uh, so it was somebody special, somebody famous, I guess. And um, and then people began to walk up to him. The braver people began to walk up to this person and uh, began to shake their hand and talk to him or ask for an autograph. Some even wanted to do selfies. Uh, and, and the guy and the gal, they were being gracious about it. And, and I'm like, OK, this person, they look vaguely familiar. And you know how sometimes you're you're kind of surfing and you're like looking for something to read and you see an article. What's that about? So you click on it. And then my mind went back to a few weeks earlier where there was an article. I clicked on it and there was a photo of this guy. And I thought, what was that guy's name? What was his name? What was his name? All I could remember was the mountain. So, so I Googled the mountain, and, and sure enough, it was this guy. I'd never seen this show. Uh, HBO, I guess, has a show, Game of Thrones. And this guy called the mountain, who is a part of this show. He's, he's an actor, and he is a mountain. He is massive. Um, and I guess maybe six, seven, six, eight, six, nine, uh, and just wide as a house and thick, not an ounce of fat on the guy. And so I Googled, Googled a little bit about him. His name is Hafnor Julius Bjornsson, and he's from Iceland. And his bio said he was 6'8 and weighed over 400 pounds with a 60-inch chest, 22-inch biceps, that he could deadlift well over 1,000 pounds, and that he had won the world's strongest man competition. Here's a photo of the guy. Just, just massive. Um, just, just huge. And he sat down with his wife, and I was curious because there was such a contrast. As big as he was... His wife was tiny, 5'2", a ballet dancer, about 100 pounds, you know. And they ate lunch just a couple tables away from me. And he was so massive and so powerful, it was just hard not to stare, you know. You're like to look at out of the corner of your eye. And uh, I never got a picture. I just thought, I'm not going to bother the poor guy. But that's what people would often think of when, 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 you, when, you, when you describe a powerful, when you think of power, you think of, of strength, is a, is a physically 
almost superhuman strength person, a freak of nature who's just dominant and dominating as far as their physical power. Or, or maybe you don't think of that. Maybe you think of a person who's, who's powerful because they're politically connected or they're wealthy beyond imagination or, or they just have a certain status and influence in society because of their connections. But, but what is power? What is strength? Biblically speaking, what is power? Today we continue our sermon series through portions of the Gospel of Mark, and we come to a passage in which Mark sets up this contrast between two figures. It's a contrast in power and then how that power is manifested, how it's, you know, how it's lived out, the nature of that power. So, Mark 15 the first 15 verses are going to center in the passage. Is, we're not going to do all 41 verses, but we're going to look at the first 15 verses. And, and, and so far in the book of Mark, it's coming to kind of the climax towards the end, because next week there's one more chapter. And guess what it's on? The resurrection. Okay, fitting on Easter. Uh, but but up, up to this point, this last chapter, Mark 14, Jesus has been betrayed by Judas. Um, he has been kind of rested in the middle of the night illegally. He's been drugged in front of a kangaroo court, trumped up charges, nothing seems to stick. He's been beaten. He's been condemned by the religious leaders. And now he is in his, his last hours. It's, it's Good Friday. It's early morning Good Friday. And now he comes in front of the man who has the say about what happens to him, a man named Pilate, who's in charge of Judea, the Roman governor in charge of Judea. And, and Pilate is a very, very powerful man. I mean, there really aren't any checks and balances for this guy. What he says is law. Kind of the whole, so let it be said, so let it be done. That's kind of his mandate. And, and, and Jesus, on, when you contrast him, on the other hand, he's bound, it says. He's beaten. He's completely abandoned. And he's about to lose his life. And, and Mark, Mark here, he contrasts these two, these two men, these two types of power, these two kingdoms. One is the type of power that, that we aspire to often in the world. And the other is the type of power that we often want to avoid at all costs. So let's pick it up. Let's pick it up now in verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin reached a decision. They bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. So it's, it's early morning, and the contrast already began. The early morning, uh, these, these Roman rulers, uh, they wanted to get things done early. So they have the rest of the day. I mean, who doesn't like to do that? Get your things done early so you have the rest of the day. And he had the privilege to be able to do that. And so um, he's, he wants to have his day free to do what he wants to do. And Jesus, on the other hand, really doesn't appear to have any freedom. He's on the way to being killed. Pilate, on one hand, is connected. He's a mover and a shaker. Um, at one point, he was considered as a possible future emperor. He has connections. He knows how to move the levers of power and access. Jesus seemingly has no connections. His closest friends have left him high and dry. They've run away. Um, 
He seems to have no access to the levers of power here. He doesn't have a lawyer to stand up with him. He's on his own. Another contrast, Pilate sitting in a palace, a massive palace. One historian from the period described it as the king's palace, which no tongue could describe. Its magnificent and equipment were unsurpassable. So he has free access to this, this palace. He could probably move from room to room uh, throughout the course of a month and never have to sleep in the same room if he didn't want to. Jesus, on the other hand, what the Bible tells us is what? He has no place to lay his head. Jesus doesn't own a house. Jesus has no real estate. He has no 401k. He's a prisoner. He's bound. He's about to be beaten. He's about to be condemned. Pilate has troops at his disposal. He has the power to execute. And according to Luke 13, he wasn't afraid to use it. It says that he once mixed the blood of Galileans who were rebels with their sacrifices. So there was no appeal, no Supreme Court to second-guess Pilate's decision. What he said would happen. Now, I want to see this contrast between Jesus and Pilate today because Pilate has everything that most people in the world today hope for. Henri Nouwen puts it this way. He said, Our addictions make us cling to what the world proclaims as the keys to self-fulfillment. Accumulation of wealth and power, attainment of status and admiration, lavish consumption of food and drink, and sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. Now, I don't know anything about Pilate's sex life. But everything else that now mentions is, is what Pilate had and what many, let's be honest, many of us long for. He had it all. But notice what happens in this passage. Pilate has all the advantages But Jesus, it seems, as we read through the passage, he's the one who seems to be in control. Pick it up in verse 6. Now, it was a custom at the festival, the festival of Passover, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. So he was a rebel. They killed some people. They'd been caught. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of envy that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. So Pilate, he's no idiot. He he can see what's happening here. He knows Jesus is innocent. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they all shouted the louder, Crucify him! And wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So it's here you begin to realize that, that Pilate doesn't, there's limits to his power, that he's not calling the shots in every instance. He's, he's not a free man. Because we see in these verses that he wants to let Jesus go. He doesn't have a problem with Jesus. Uh, he, he wants Jesus to be set free. He thinks it's all just this kind of weird kind of inner family issue between the Jewish people. Just let the guy go. But the crowd won't let him. He won't let him. And so he turns him over to the crowd. He crumbles and, and turns him over to the crowd. 
eventually Pilate's removed from office and he travels to Rome to defend himself against some charges. On the way there, the emperor died and Pilate just disappears from history. We, we have no idea what happened to him after that. But we see in this passage, he's a man who seemingly has everything, but the power that he has is fleeting, it's temporary, it's, it's conditional, it's, it's, it's limited. You know, people, we, we, we can spend our lives chasing everything that he had. We, we, we can do that. But those things are temporary, they're fleeting, they're, they're conditional. And so Mark contrasts the strength and the connections and the influence and the power of Pilate on one hand in his kingdom, and he contrasts Jesus and, and, and the weakness of Jesus, seemingly, which ultimately flips the tables and turns out to be the greatest power that's ever existed. So we see the weakness of Jesus here. He's bound, he's abandoned. The crowd turns against him. They release a, a murderer instead of him. And he's condemned and he's scourged, which means he would have been tied to a post. They would have taken a whip with leather straps, been, been stoned and bone and hooks attached and just whipped him until he was just a, a mess in the back of and there's no greater picture of weakness than in this, this passage. But Jesus is not a victim. He's in control. This is a chosen weakness. Jesus has a kingdom that far exceeds Pilate's. But he lays it aside and chooses to become weak for our sake. He's not a victim. He chooses to be weak. And that's the irony that Jesus, who is bound and seemingly powerless, is actually the one in charge, not Pilate and not the crowds. In fact, Jesus had predicted that this would happen in Mark 10. Mark told the disciples, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles, that would be Pilate and the Romans, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus could have put an end to it at any moment, but he didn't. He chose what happened to him because his kingdom, his strength, his power functions radically different than the power and the strength of the kingdom of Pilate and the world. That's why when Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, you have said so. In other words, Jesus is saying, yes, I am a king, but I'm not the kind of king that you envision. You rule through earthly power. I rule through sacrifice, through suffering, through selflessness, through surrender. I'm the type of king, Jesus is saying, who willingly will leave his throne to come to earth, to give up his rights and privileges for the sake of people like you. He's the kind of king who lays aside his strength and comes in weakness. Of Isaiah 53 prophesied this. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their face, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. And surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. Now, if that's the kind of king that we have, if that's the kind of king that Jesus came to earth to be, what does that mean for us who identify with his kingdom? who claim him as our king and our Lord. It means that we too 
will lay aside our privileges, our, our power, so that we can serve others. We will choose to be weak in the world's eyes. Justin Martyr, an early church father who lived from 180 to about 165 A.D., wrote this. We who used to value the acquisition of wealth and possessions more than anything else now bring what we have into a common fund and share it with anyone who needs it. We used to hate and destroy one another and refuse to associate with people of another race or country. Now, because of Christ, we live together with such people and we pray for our enemies. Giving up wealth and prejudice and grudges. Clement, who lived around the same time, described a Christian this way. He impoverishes himself out of love so that he is certain he may never overlook a brother in need, especially if he knows he can bear poverty better than his brother. He likewise considers the pain of another as his own pain. And if he suffers any hardship because of having given out of his own poverty, he doesn't complain. Nobody puts it better than than John. We quoted this verse last week, but it's appropriate again today. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And so we ought to do the same for our brothers and our sisters. Jesus chose to be weak. He chose to be weak. And we are called to choose to become weak as we follow him, pouring our lives for others. You know, every once in a while, there's a movie that comes out from Hollywood and it features a hero or a heroine who, you know, who gives up their life for, for other people. They, they lay down their life. You know, there's Bruce Wilson was in the news a lot lately because of his unfortunate health issue. And, and, uh, and the movie Armageddon popped on. You know, he was the, the driller and he goes into space and saves the world and he gives his life. And, and we see those things and it moves us and, 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 and it makes us feel something. We think, wow, I, I'd like to think that I would, you know, I'd lay down my life for somebody in need, especially if it was my you know, sibling or my kid or my parent or you know, a spouse, uh, a, a good friend. We'd like to think we'd do that. But Jesus' substitution is different. Whose place does Jesus take? He takes the place of people like the cowardly disciples who abandon him at his hour of need. He takes the place of the scheming religious leaders and, and spineless politicians like, like, like Pilate. He takes the place of people like the bloodstained Barabbas and and the cursing criminal on the cross. People are the reason Jesus goes to the cross. People like you and me. We are the reason. And this love of God, it it does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's a picture of what Jesus does for us who trust in him. He dies in our place while we who are guilty get to go free like Barabbas. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Mark here, he's, he's showing two types of kings, two types of kingdoms, two types of power and strength. One is how we normally live. Get ahead. Get the most out of life. Enjoy life. The second is a king whose strength is manifested by surrender, by suffering, by selflessness, so that we who are condemned are 
set free. Only one of those kings saves. Only one of those kings rules forever. In Mark 15, Pilate asks another question. The first was, you know, are they king of the Jews? And why don't you answer that sort of thing? But here he asks another question. It's a question that to the crowd, and it, it comes to us as well. What then shall I do with Jesus? What then shall I do with Jesus? There's only two possible answers for us. We can crown him as Lord and King and follow him. Or we can reject him like the crowd. Send him on his way to the cross. What will you do with Jesus? If he is the Son of God, then we are to crown him as Lord of our lives and give him our hearts. But if he isn't, if he isn't, then by all means, send him off. Reject him. Don't give him a second thought. What will you do with Jesus? I can't answer that question for you. No one can but you. I mean, Pilate, he tried to find a third way. He tried to just, I'm just going to, I'm not going to be involved here. I'm just going to wash my hands of it. I'm going to be neutral. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to abstain from making a decision about Jesus. But nothing could wash him clean but the very blood of the man standing in front of him. And nothing can make us clean but the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. So what will you do with Jesus? Because before long, we're going to leave this place, we're going to leave this world, having made a decision either for him or against him. What then will you do with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you again for your word. We thank you for Jesus, your son. Lord, we thank you that Jesus did not consider his power, his riches, his privilege, something to hold on to, but that he came to earth. He set those things aside and he poured out his life for us. A different kind of king. A king that rules through love. A king that provides freedom and liberates us through sacrifice of himself. Father, help us to be people who follow his example. And help us be sure and clear in our minds, Lord, where we stand with Jesus. I pray that each person who hears my voice this morning would be clear in their heart and their mind about who Jesus is and what they're going to do about him, what they're going to do with him, what they're going to do for him. Lord, through your Holy Spirit now, work on our hearts and minds that we might give our lives completely to you. In Jesus' name, amen.